issues of dementia are not far away. And um, even if that's not the primary problem of the client or patient or carer that you are looking after, um, it, it has an impact on the work that you do on a daily basis. Um, even paediatric nurses with aging grandparents. The, so it's, it's a critical issue. And so it's entirely appropriate that our opening and keynote address is from Kate Swafford. Kate commenced her professional career as a nurse. And she specialized in dementia and then became uh, an operating theater nurse. And then was diagnosed with younger onset dementia. Um, she has been amazing. She's, had a, she's got a BA in writing and creative communications, Bachelor of Psychology, psychology Masters in Dementia Care, and uh, is an author and speaker both here and overseas, and an active consumer advocate for people with dementia and their families, and published many books, um, articles, and um, in 19, earlier on this year, her first book on dementia, What the Hell Happened to My Brain, Living Beyond Dementia, has been um, important and recognized. Please, and has won many awards for her advocacy work. Please welcome Kate Swaffer. Thank you for that welcome, Norman, and thank you to uh, Angela and the team who've invited me here to speak today. Uh, it's a great honour, um, and uh, following on from Auntie Norma's um, wonderful welcome to country, thank you, um, I think that uh, it would be great if the rest of us respected our elders in the same way that Aboriginal people do. Um, we seem not to be quite as... Uh, respectful of older people. So that really resonated with me, Auntie Norma. Thank you. Um, just very briefly, the global statistics on dementia. Um, the World Health Organization last year announced there was 47 and a half, more than 47 and a half million people with dementia. Currently in Australia, more than 353,000 people. Uh, more than 25,000 people with younger onset dementia um, in Australia, which is under the age of 65. Globally, one new diagnosis every 3.2 seconds. Um, the rate in Australia, 1,800 new cases a week, uh, which is significant. Um, approximately 130 types or causes of dementia and Alzheimer's disease makes up roughly 50 to 70%, depending on which bit of data you read. Um, dementia is a terminal, chronic, progressive illness. Currently, there's no cure, there's no disease-modifying treatment, there's some uh, treatment for some types of uh, Alzheimer's disease, but they're not a cure and they might slow the disease down, but they don't prevent it. So that was a graphic put out by Alzheimer's Disease International last year, which is actually a little bit frightening when you think about it from the economic cost. Obviously, I think about dementia from the human cost. Um, and yes, it has impacted my family financially because I no longer work, but the, the human cost to dementia is significant. Dementia is also very complicated. I often have nurses who work in dementia care or people in the public who ask me, 
is Alzheimer's dementia. Well, Alzheimer's disease is one of about 130 types of dementia, and there are subcategories under that. So it's a very complicated condition, and dementia, like the word car, like the word fruit, is just an umbrella term. There are some, uh, lots of very good evidence for risk reduction factors, and I assume most of you people here are nurses, like I used to be. Um, so lifestyle factors have been found to reduce the risk of dementia, as with most of the other chronic diseases like heart disease. Um, physical exercise, increasing of physical exercise, mental exercise, specifically new learning. So if you currently do cryptic crosswords, go and do something different to that. Um, Reduce your isolation, that's been known to be a risk factor for dementia for people in the older cohort. Definitely give up smoking and reduce your alcohol intake. Although I read some interesting data last week that said if you've never had an alcoholic drink in your life, that increases your risk for dementia, so don't give up completely. I was diagnosed eight years ago at the age of 49. I was a mother of two teenage children, one doing year 12. I was working full-time. I was studying uh, at the University of South Australia. Uh, and the day I was diagnosed, I was still doing all of that, but with some difficulties. All of a sudden, all that anyone ever saw were the missing pieces, my deficits. I think the next slide is a little video I'm going to play you of what it felt like when I was first diagnosed. No, it's after that. So I wrote a book, as Norman said earlier this year, What the Hell Happened to My Brain? And I often say that to myself, what the hell did happen to my brain? Um, I, I've come from a, a background of a reasonably healthy IQ and a photographic memory to some days not remembering my husband's name. I made that digital story for a course at university. I don't actually remember making it anymore, um, but it's got my name in the credits, so I must have. Uh, and it is how I felt when I was first diagnosed, but I'm really, really grateful. I don't feel like that all of the time. Some of the time I still feel that fear, um, and it's not meant to be an ageist video at all. My father-in-law, who had Lewy body dementia with Parkinson's, went into aged care when he was about 74, and he said he was too young for aged care. Um, and uh, another close family friend in his 80s said, I'm not going in there, they're for old people. So it, I think everybody feels like an aged care, um, residential aged care facility is for old people, and nobody really feels that old. So you would look at me and think, I don't look like I have dementia. Uh, most of my disabilities are still, thankfully, fairly invisible. Um, what started for me was going from exceptional spelling and grammar and maths to not being able to spell the word that or understand the difference between words like there and there, the different spellings of those words. And then I acquired uh, more symptoms of a dyslexia, which I'd never had, so I was seeing red and green back to front, which did make driving moderately dangerous. So I was going through red lights thinking they were green, throwing on the brakes at green lights thinking they were red. Um, so when I sat my driver's test, I was 50, 
and my neurologist thought I would pass, my neuropsychologist thought I would pass. I knew I was having some problems, but I thought I would pass. I failed 35% fail rate. So there wasn't even an opportunity for me to go and have a few driving lessons and reset the test. I failed so badly that for me what that said is I'd lost a significant amount of insight about my driving capacity. And I do write and I have written about driving um, in my book and, I, and uh, in journals. And I actually think that we need to relook at and rethink um, driving and dementia because if you've been diagnosed, which is a difficult thing to do, you're possibly not that safe to be driving as well. There's a lot of emotional costs to dementia. When I was first diagnosed, I've had quite a number of other fairly serious health issues, including brain surgery. So my children have grown up with their mother in the last 15 years of having serious health issues. Um, and my youngest son, who was 17 at the time, kind of laughed when I said I've got dementia. And he said, Mum, isn't that a funny old person's disease? And we did laugh. But I wasn't laughing on the inside. I can guarantee that. And I can definitely say that having dementia is not like a birthday party. It's not always fun. But I have learned to manage to live with it and to live beyond it. Um, it obviously affects families in different ways. And my husband, the first couple of years, um, was always trying to take over and do for me rather than letting me struggle with my increasing disabilities. Um, but it's challenging for families because um, they can see the changes and they know what's ahead. So I found him sitting on the stairs one day with his head in his hands in tears and that's what he said. So I won't read that out because it, it still upsets me. So he sees the changes far more than I now see the changes. And for families looking after people with dementia, they're confronted with that all the time. So is it possible to live well with dementia? Alzheimer's Disease International have had a global charter for about five years, perhaps, that says I can live well with dementia. So far, nowhere in the sector is telling people with dementia how to live well with dementia. But there's been a major global conversation between people with dementia on the online community that I manage about the term living well. Well, what does living well mean to me would be very different to what living well means to you. So we don't particularly like that term. And then a colleague of mine in London wrote a book, Living Better with Dementia. Well, better than what and better than who? There was always this contrast. If you're not living as well as person X with dementia, does it mean you're not trying hard enough? So I started saying living beyond dementia, and we, the community of people with dementia in the world, the more than 47.5 million of us, need to be taught how to live beyond dementia. So for me, it looks... Uh, the analogy's been used before, though it's not... Uh, um, I'm not the first person to use this analogy, but for me to function with dementia, I look calm on the surface, but below the surface, I'm paddling quite hard, even to speak. 
Um, and I do know over the years that my paddling has got more difficult and causes more fatigue. Um, and the next stage of that analogy is what often happens to people with dementia is everybody starts doing for them and tells them to slow down. Um, if that swan stops paddling, what would happen to the swan? Of course, the swan will sink. And that's what happens to people with dementia, where people living with disabilities caused by the symptoms of dementia, we actually need to be supported to paddle harder, to keep functioning for as long as possible. Doesn't mean it's a cure, but it's actually a more proactive way to keep us functioning. One of the things that I think has been missing greatly in the dementia care of people with dementia, and my background, um, when I was still nursing, I became involved uh, in running a group called the Breathe Through Suicide Support Group because I lost a partner to suicide um, in about 30 years ago. Uh, and I did a lot of loss and grief counselling. And then when I got dementia, my husband was offered counselling to cope with my changes and I was offered no counselling at all. And I realised fairly quickly that living with dementia is a daily experience of new grief or ongoing grief. So unlike when you lose someone in a death, you eventually learn to live without that person. With dementia, every time a new symptom appears, or a current symptom gets worse, you have a whole new uh, dose of feelings of loss and grief and sadness related to the loss of function that that new or worsening symptom is causing you. So the first time that I couldn't remember my husband's name, yes, he felt like I'd kicked him in the stomach. It was awful to see his face. But the feeling of grief that I felt, not being able to remember the name of the man I loved enough to marry, was overwhelming. And every time things change, that comes back. Now, I knew as a grief counsellor that if somebody had unresolved grief, they often uh, developed uh, symptoms that you could say were symptoms of dementia. So I remember after David um, died, I had memory loss, I was apathetic, I sometimes felt confused, I couldn't concentrate. Well, they're all symptoms of dementia as well. So if you compound the unmanaged grief for people with dementia, maybe their dementia is, appears to be getting worse, may not be getting worse, it's just the unresolved grief or untreated grief. So in fact, the chapter, the, the longest chapter in my book is about the grief that people with dementia feel about losing capacity, about losing function, about losing memories. My kids used to call me the walking telephone book because if I'd seen a phone number or if I'd read your bank card number, I would have remembered it. So they could just say, Mum, what's so-and-so's phone number? And I'd be able to spit that out. Now I can't. I can't even read phone numbers in the phone book anymore because the lines get mixed up. But there's a lot of grief attached to losing that capacity. And I think it really needs to be addressed in the sector. 
I came up with a term called prescribed disengagement, which ultimately I applied for a trademark and, and um, it's been trademarked in two medical categories. So what is prescribed disengagement? Well, when I had another terminal illness, I was offered all sorts of support to fight for my life. Even though I chose a holistic pathway, I didn't choose surgery. I was taught to fight for my life. When I was diagnosed with dementia, remembering I was 49, and remembering as I walked into the appointment, I'd been working, I'd come out of a major appointment, working full-time, studying a double degree. I was told to give up work. In my case, because I was studying, I was told to give up study because it would be too stressful. I was told to get my end-of-life affairs in order and yes, at the age of 49, told to start going to daycare, respite, one day a month to get used to it. That's not just unpalatable, I believe it's unethical. So my husband was also told that very soon he would have to give up work and become my full-time carer. So the cost of this prescribed disengagement not only that we get no support to live well with dementia, it takes away all sense of hope for a future. It often can be the reason, I believe, why people become, take on the persona of sufferer and victims of dementia. And it's also why our care partners become consumed in caring for us and often take on a martyr role. I see it time and time and time again, and I advocate globally to stop this prescribed disengagement. So the cost is that people with dementia give up. I have people with dementia say to me, I don't know why you bother to fight so hard to overcome the symptoms of dementia. You're just going to die anyway, so why bother? That's because they've been prescribed disengagement from life. It's really, really important. Once you've got hope, anything's possible. So obviously I had to give up my driving licence because I failed my driving test. At the time, I then lost my job. I now know that I have rights under the CRPD. I could have remained employed with reasonable adjustments, but I didn't realise that and nobody told me that. But the university lecturers who, being an older student I was friends with, they said to me, there's no need to give up university, go and see the disability support team. The disability services gave me back my hope. They got a letter from my neurologist who listed my uh, um, diagnosis and then listed all the symptoms and then next to the symptoms, all of the disabilities that were being uh, uh, from those symptoms. So for the disability support team, and if any of you have had children with dyslexia or other disabilities, you will find at school and at university, they are supported unbelievably, proactively and positively to keep living their life and fulfilling their dreams. That's what being at university, when I got dementia, did for me. So they set me up with an amazing um, amount of support that was reviewed every time a symptom changed or got worse or a new symptom appeared. So it did take me a lot longer to finish a double degree, but that didn't mean I couldn't live Kate Swaffer's life. 
So university and the way they manage and support people with dementia really is what gave me back my hope. I don't know how easily you will see that, but I've developed um, the pathway of care, which is on my right, possibly on your right also. Um, but the current medical model of care still supports prescribed disengagement. It's very medical, medically oriented on our deficits. The pathway on the other side, which is one that I developed through my own experience and through being supported by a university, yes, I still recommend get your end of life affairs in order. In fact, if you're 18, I recommend you do that because anything can happen to anyone at any time. Um, and if you don't want to be kept alive on life support after a road accident, then you should, have, you should think about getting your end of life wishes in order. And uh, I actually think that when kids learn to vote at school when they're 18, they should get taught this stuff as well. It's really important. Um, and of course, all those other things that you need when you've been diagnosed with dementia. You do need support with your activities of daily living. You do need support possibly down the track with either respite care, community care, or residential age care. So even though my husband says he will never put me in a nursing home, I have chosen one, which a couple of my nursing friends know about. So if they ever need to twist his arm, at least I've made that choice. Um, so the thing that's missing in dementia care currently, because it's so based on deficits in the medical model, is supporting us to keep living. So supporting us to stay at work if we're younger, to be volunteers, to be active in our communities and to keep living our pre-diagnosis life if that's what we want. I know some people with dementia who go, stuff that, I'm on the bucket list. It's a terminal illness. I don't know how long I've got. I'm just going to head on to the bucket list and that's okay too. But lots of us just want to keep living our lives rather than having our lives taken away from us. So people with dementia, I've taken those models of care and what I consider a lack of ethical pathway of care. I've been advocating for it on a human rights space for some time now. Um, 15 months ago, I presented at the World Health Organization First Ministerial Conference on Dementia, and I added that rehabilitation should be offered to people with dementia. My girlfriend had a stroke when she was 52, another operating room nurse. We didn't think she'd ever walk, talk, feed herself, or use her right side again. Within six weeks, she was out of hospital. Within 12 months, she was back to work. And that's when I went, where the hell was my rehab? I have got what could be likened to a progressive brain injury. And so that's when I started to self-prescribe rehabilitation for, for myself for dementia. My medical specialist, I think, thought it was a bit of a joke. My neurophysiotherapist, who's also a lecturer at Flinders University, started to see the benefits of supporting me with that pathway. He now believes in it so passionately, he teaches it to his Masters of Physiotherapy students. Um, so it's really, really important that people with dementia also are supported with things like rehabilitation to keep functioning for as long as possible. And support for our disabilities 
caused by the symptoms of dementia. So people with dementia, many of us want to be assisted to remain engaged in our pre-diagnosis lives and especially for younger people. That's really important. Why would a, a mother of two teenage boys want to suddenly start going to a daycare centre one day a month? And currently there's no daycare centres or aged care facilities in South Australia that's age appropriate for me. And I think that is a human rights issue. So when we put children into hospital, we don't put them in the geriatric ward and we don't put them in the adult ward. They have their own paediatric ward. So where's our younger onset dementia facilities around the world? And I know there is one in New South Wales run by Hammond Care, but I think that's 12 beds. And to my knowledge, that's the only residential facility that's actually age appropriate for me. Well, it's too far away for me to go there. I would have no family and friends to visit me. But I actually see it as a human rights issue as well, because we wouldn't put our kids into an adult or a geriatric ward. But we do need authentic rehabilitation. We do need the community and the sector to focus on our abilities and what we can still do, and to support our disabilities to function for as long as possible. And the dementia communities, dementia-friendly communities work around the world also needs to go beyond awareness and being friendly. It needs to move towards access for people with cognitive impairment in their community in the same way there is a wheelchair ramp in this building for people in a wheelchair and there's probably a hearing loop. So we deserve the same disability support that any other person living with disability uh, is offered. We also deserve dementia-enabling environments. That's a human rights issue. Um, and we need to be helped to manage risk, not eliminate risk. I know there's a, a nursing home called Star at Lodge and they've got a group uh, of residents who do fundraising for their residents' bucket list and they had one of their residents uh, jumping out of a plane in his 80s. Now, I, I imagine the uh, managers and owners of Star at Lodge were horrified but in his opinion, that was a reasonable risk and at his age, he didn't really care if it went wrong. We have that same right as anybody else without dementia to take those risks. I've been skydiving. I will do it again. So if most of you are nurses here, you probably will have heard of behavioural and psychological symptoms of dementia. And, and that's been a massive, I see, and many of my colleagues, academics and clinicians around the world, and now starting to see that that term has, is doing more harm than it's doing good. And interestingly, in my Masters of Science degree, I discovered that the term was invented by a drug company. So we can't medicate for dementia. There's no disease modifying, no cure but we can medicate for anxiety, aggression, depression, and so on. So I'm very cynical about the term. And there's a whole emerging and growing cohort of clinicians and academics who are thinking in the same way as people with dementia. So I believe that it has actually encouraged chemical and physical restraint, not discouraged. 
and still with BPSD, we're still seen as challenging behaviours rather than people who are responding to a difficult situation. There's a big difference. So if my father-in-law, we ended up needing to put him into residential care at the same time that I put a 54-year-old friend who I was legal guardian for, in, we had him in the same nursing home as Dad, um, they both felt locked in jail. Every day that I visited them, they said, why have you locked me in jail? Now, in the mental health sector, we don't just lock people up for their own safety, do we? We go through all sorts of sanctions before we can lock somebody with a mental health issue away, and yet, without even thinking about it, we're locking people up with dementia all around the world. That, too, is a human rights issue. That is a form of physical restraint. So we, we sell nursing homes, and I I've, was out looking for them. I, I went to 27 different nursing homes in South Australia, and, and the, the glossy brochures um, speak about nursing homes and dementia-secure, dementia-specific units as your new home. Well, if that's my home, I want a key, thank you very much. That's how most people feel about aged care. Doesn't mean all aged care is bad, by the way. And I absolutely believe that the aged care and dementia sector um, uh, in Australia and in other countries that I've seen is really working very, very hard to improve everything um, for their residents. So, you know, I applaud the work that they're doing. The other thing in dementia is uh, the language that's used about us. So if the media, if the community keeps talking about me as a sufferer, ultimately I might just give up fighting and become that sufferer. So our words do reflect our thoughts and our feelings. Words do matter. If you think about, if you've had children, if you keep talking about the, your child being naughty and all the things they've done wrong, you don't encourage them to be more positive. So suffering from dementia or a victim of dementia is disempowering, disabling, and people with dementia around the world say completely disrespectful in the same way as the word retarded. Diagnosed with dementia or living with dementia is far more empowering and enabling. So in looking up the definition of dementia, um, the synonyms are still demented, sufferer, mental illness, madness, and so on. Four years ago, the synonyms are for the word disabled used to be synonyms are now listed as offensive. So, and that's probably taken the disability sector 30 years to get to that. So I, I'm hoping in my lifetime we can get the dictionary to at least change um, from synonyms to words that we find offensive because it, it's not semantics, it's about how we feel about the way we're spoken about. And we would never use any of those offensive words to refer to people who are living with disabilities and yet the community at large continues to insist that we're sufferers. So Alzheimer's Australia have probably the most recent and most comprehensive dementia language guidelines um, and I strongly recommend if you're working in dementia or you know, even at events like this uh, as an MC, refer to those guidelines. 
I'm just going to talk very briefly about the history of dementia advocacy. We, we borrowed from the disability sector the strap line of nothing about us without us. Um, in the year 2000, Christine Bryden, who many of you will have heard of, a prominent Australian uh, lady with dementia and been an advocate for 21 years, she was part of a group that set up um, DASNI, an international organisation that was for people with dementia and their care partners. Mostly the membership for that group uh, has become care partners and is not really looking after the needs of people with dementia. In 2002, the Scottish Dementia Working Group was set up and that's a group of people with dementia who inform policy, who inform practice in Scotland. They've been a very powerful lobbyist group as well in that country. Um, there's now, there's probably more, actually, I don't think they're all showing on that slide, but there's a number of dementia working groups around the world, including one in Australia, which I um, instigated being set up in 2013. But it took the world 10 years to catch up to Scotland. Um, dementia Alliance International is an organisation that I'm one of seven co-founders of and I'm currently chair and CEO of as well. Two of our members have already passed away. Um, interestingly, neither of them from dementia, but we're a global support and advocacy group. We are the global voice of people with dementia now, 2000, more than 2,000 members representing 36 countries, and in collaboration with Alzheimer's Disease International, we're now recognised as the peak body for people with dementia. So they're the types of services that we um, provide. We're free, we, our services are free, apart from webinars, our monthly educational webinars where we do charge professionals a small fee, but for members and for our families, we don't charge. Uh, we have support groups running all around the world in different time zones uh, and including occasionally in Nigeria. So our membership really is becoming um, a very broad group. You can follow those links there if you're interested in it. Uh, one of our strap lines is uh, we are the dementia experts of the lived experience. That's not to denigrate the academic experts or the medical experts, but we are the experts of the lived experience of dementia. That's our other strap line, is see the person, not the dementia. So focus on what we can do. Don't focus on what we can't do. In 2014-2015, um, the World Dementia Council was set up, uh, funded by the UK government. They didn't have a person with dementia on that group. We advocated, in the end, very loudly, putting letters on our website, open letters on our website to the World Dementia Envoy. Eventually, in 2015, a person with dementia was invited to join that um, council. Um, that year, we also... Uh, officially collabor in collaboration with ADI. Um, in 2015, I made these three demands at the World Health Organization, a human right to a more ethical post-diagnostic pathway, being treated with the same human rights and disability rights as everybody else, and research not only for a cure, of course I'd like to be cured, but also to improve our care. In 2015, one of the awards that I was probably the most proud to win was being recognised in the National Disability Awards because that puts dementia properly into the disability space. The World Dementia Council now has two people with dementia, of which I'm the second person. 
Dementia Alliance International, we published our first official publication this year on the human rights of people with dementia, and we're trying to take it from rhetoric to reality. So 165 countries have ratified the CRPD as being relevant to people with dementia, but so far nobody's accessing or using that tool to improve our care or our rights. So that is downloadable if anyone wants a copy of that or I've got some printed copies here. But we still have lots of work to do. In May, people with dementia were not included at a conference in the World Health Organization that was all about inclusion of people with dementia. So we're, we are some of the way, but gee, we've got a long way to go. Because we need more than just people with dementia speaking at events or advocating on consumer groups. We actually need, we have and deserve the same rights as everybody else, which is full inclusion. So really, I know nothing about dementia. <laughs> I only live with it 24 hours of every day. Um, so I do know a lot about the lived experience. I am still studying it. Uh, and the more I learn about dementia, the less it terrifies me. And the more I learn about dementia, the more I realise that if we do treat the symptoms as disabilities, everyone with dementia will live a longer, more productive life than they currently are. I've been active in Australia for a few years now uh, with what's called Dignity in Care Australia. Dignity, the 10 Dignity in Care principles were developed in the UK, in Birmingham, and Adelaide's very lucky to have a senior consultant geriatrician, Dr Fazel Ibrahim, who's brought those Dignity and Care principles to one of the major hospitals in Adelaide. And after six months of implementing those principles in their hospital, they went from 200 code blacks a month to two. So the code blacks weren't people with challenging behaviours. The code blacks were being caused by a lack of some of those dignity and care principles. So when they fixed that, they actually fixed most of the behaviour of their patients. It wasn't just dementia patients, it was all patients. So we're now uh, Australia-wide, Dignity and Care Australia, and we're a very active group. We've got another conference coming up this year um, somewhere. I'm not sure where to be determined. Uh, but I strongly recommend you can download those principles either from Birmingham or from the South Australian Department of Health website. And as long as you acknowledge where they come from, there is no uh, copyright on them, apart from you're not allowed to change their logo. So I'd like to thank you.